kick off the season. Um, I don't know if you're into New Year's resolutions. It's not like my thing, really. I just, you know, when I decide I'm going to do something new, I'll, I'll do it or not do it the, the beginning of the year. Um, it's not really a, a huge factor in terms of when I make big decisions like that, but it does create a stopping point, right? It gives us this opportunity to stop and say, okay, well, there's a, a, a focusing point or maybe a vision casting moment or a gathering around determined efforts, whatever it might be, as you jump into a new year and it's a fresh start. So you get to kind of reevaluate, think about your history, make adjustments moving into the future based on whatever goals you might have. And so our theme this month, as we kick off the new year and as we go through the month of January, our, our series is going to be this idea of invitation, all right? This, this, um, this is a, a theme that has been stirring in the elders and the staff for a while. In fact, we went on a retreat. Every, every end of summer, we go on a retreat together, and we do kind of like a, a spiritual SWOT analysis. What's working? What's not? God, what are you speaking to us? And one of the themes that kept coming up, one is prayer, which is why you've seen us increase our emphasis on prayer. One of them was this theme of invitation. And so this has been going on in the background. In fact, as a way to introduce it, maybe a soft launch for all you business people out there. You like that? Um, We did the entire semester with the youth group on this one theme. All right, we we kind of allowed them to lead the way to, to be the first fruits of this thing, this word that we felt God was speaking over us. And so we've launched, um, as, as we thought, they were like, is this a word for our congregation for the fall or for 2024? And we just felt like God had other things going in the fall. We're finally getting to it with this group. Know that the youth have already been saturated in this idea. In fact, um, as we were doing it, we're just asking this question, what does it mean to walk into this new year with a people, as, sorry, as a people of invitation? All right? What does it mean to become a person and then as a church to become a people of invitation as we go into the new year? And so as God was doing all of these things, we took little themes and stuff. And as we sowed it out to the youth, we talked about invitations that Jesus gave us to receive his grace, to come to him no matter what, no matter what our background is. Invitations to raise our level of commitment to him, to surrender certain areas of our life to him, to walk in better discipleship, and to open our Bibles a little bit more. We even talked about, Kathy Barnes um, introduced, one of our, our leaders, she introduced this idea. She said, what if we took invitation and flipped it and said, what about the anti-invitations? And the anti-invitations were all the things in the world that invite you to say, come follow me instead of Jesus. And we took two weeks on that. We did this idea of challenging ourselves to be an inviting people, to invite others to know Jesus' grace and mercy, to bring them into the community. We had Dumas came out and, and preached to us and said, sometimes being an invitational kind of person is making sure the unnoticed person gets noticed. And he challenged our youth to go out in the cafeteria as you're walking down the halls. If you see someone alone, just look at them and say, I see you. That's it. That's simple. We asked them to invite their friends. And dude, they showed up. 27, 26, 27 kids. We, we, we normally have about 20, but man, I, I want to I challenge us to break that 30 mark just to see this thing. This thing is wild when we get in here, all right? I say that, you don't know what I'm talking about. The parents know what I'm talking about. When you see the foosball table and the ping pong table going at full force and chatter around the tables and kids asking questions and all this stuff, there is an excitement that goes into that when we fill up that room in the midst of it. And so here, the reason I'm saying that is not just to boast and gloat, <laughs> I guess, brag on our kids, 
But man, they showed up. And so if there is an answer to the question, what do you want us to be on the other side of this series? Look at them. We have all kinds of new kids showing up to our youth ministry. We have kids doing, taking bold steps of faith, doing things that they hadn't done before, going in and surrendering their life in different ways. And so they're our model. So praise Jesus for sowing that first fruits into them. And this is where I want us to start today, in this invitation idea, is that have you, have you ever been in any you know, social setting where you were the one not invited? Have you ever been in a, in a where, where you found out your friends got together and, and you didn't get the text? <laughs> that they were hanging out and you weren't the one who was invited to the party, the outing, the hangout, or whatever group that you thought you would be a part of in your work situation. They actually had the meeting before the meeting and you weren't inviting to the first meeting in the midst of that. Have you ever been in that situation? And, and all I want to do is surface this idea that it reveals that we are a people who long to belong and to be a part. We might have a hard, thick skin about it and be like, no, I'm cool. I don't need that. I don't need that kind of affirmation. But we do. There's something in us that wants to be a part and included. We all want to be invited or brought into something. And so it's one thing to be invited to have fun, but there's other kinds of invitations, other kinds of acceptances inside of our culture, like job opportunities that maybe you need to be tapped on the shoulder for. It's not an application. It's like, hey, you're doing really good. I want, to, I want you to consider this promotion. Think about that invitation. College acceptance letters are a way in which they say, all right, you're good. You make the cut, we want you in. Tapped on the shoulder for things, recognized for good things you've done. Maybe someone says, man, this is a really, am- you're, you, you sing really well. What, have, you tra- have you thought about helping out with the worship ministry? These are little invitations that happen that aren't necessarily into a smaller group, but into a new stage or a phase or, or, or being brought into something that you hadn't done before. And sometimes there are ways in which we don't need barriers. Barriers are, are a problem. Someone might create a rule that gets somebody out of a club based on gender, ethnicity, race, socioeconomic status, whatever that is, that's wrong. That's gatekeeping. We have a term for that. But then there's, and so, so we have that evil that goes on, but then there's also areas over here where we're kind of glad that there's a barrier to entry, right? So, so give, I'll give you an example. If you show up for your surgery and you see me in the background putting on those gloves and sharpening knives, run for your life. I'm not qualified for something like that. You're about to go meet Jesus and I'm going to jail for negligent homicide probably, you understand what I'm saying? We, we're glad that surgeons have a barrier to entry. We want that. We don't need anyone and everyone just being able to do that. And so we recognize that there are ways in which gatekeeping can be a problem. And there's ways that certain kinds of good requirements and barriers are helpful to ensure quality, safety, performance standards that are met. And so in the first century discipleship, during that time, and we've talked about this off and on a, on a couple of different ca- occasions, so I won't, I won't dwell too much on this, but discipleship was based on an invitation. You were invited. There was a certain level, a standard that everybody in a Jewish community was expected to know, but then there was an invitation, and often that invitation, you could see why you wouldn't want anyone just speaking and shaping the lives of people, but also, do you think there might have been some gatekeeping? Some, you don't make the cut because I don't like your family. Your dad and I had beef back in the day, and so now we're just not cool. 
And so there's ways in which that can creep its way into us. So when Jesus extends the invitation to the followers that he chose, he says, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It has all these implications, a lot of weight to it when he says those few words. In fact, I want to invite you, open your Bible to Matthew 4. Matthew 4, we're going to read 18 through 22 or 24. I'm not sure how far, where, where exactly I'll stop. I think it's just going to stop at 22. So Matthew 4, 18, I think we'll have the verses up there. Thank you, Heather. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for what? People. Y'all aren't with me quite yet, huh? Not, not there yet. I will send you out to fish for what? People. At once they left their nets. They dropped them, followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, there's a way in which you could almost read this in a funny way, right? Like he's just down by the boats, and he's like, y'all, want to fish for men? And they're like, yeah, let's do this. And he's like, uh, oh, these guys too, yeah. You want to follow me? And they're just dropping, it's like this weird, like, what is, what is going on? These Jedi mind tricks on these people that are just doing their daily chores. If someone just walked into your job inside of your school and said, well, maybe some of you would be like, you know, <laughs> you know, yep, I'm done, yep, see <laughs> That's my, my two-minute notice. I'm going with this character right here. He's got a cool beard, all right? So, so he says, come follow me. I will send you out to make fish, or out to fish for people, or to become fishers of men. Now, now, in the first century, Near East culture, the entire town was, was based on educating people in the Torah, which is the, the first part of your Bible. So the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they were all something that the kids had to memorize, all right? I, I'm sure you've heard this before, and I know you've heard me talk about it in brief, but we have these kind of two ideas of education. And the first one they called Bet Safer, all right? Bet Safer. And what happened inside of that is all the kids, every kid, kids, all y'all, were taught and memorized the first five books of the Bible. Memorized. Did you hear what I just said? Memorized. And so all the way, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all these. All right, you're like, well, that's not a big chunk of that book, right? There we go. Well, if you got through that, you were taught from Torah, memorized. I'm just going to say memorize the first Now, maybe you're really good at memorizing things, and you're like, man, I, I have a really big passion. I love these stories. That Exodus thing where Pharaoh gets dropped in the middle of the Red Sea, I love this stuff. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going into it. I want to read it. I want to learn it. I want to memorize it. Most of these people up, up, up in this kind of situation would memorize that, and then they would be done because they were like, well, I got my basics down. I'm going to go ahead and move on. In fact, my family needs some help inside of their trade. And so they would learn their family trade like fishing, masonry, household chores, still having the Torah memorized, but that's as far as they got. Now, if you had a unique ability and passion to want to move on after the age of 11, this is um, somewhere between 11 and 13 years old. 
you would move down here to Beit Midrash. That's the second kind of grade level that they had for them. And so Beit Midrash is that they would learn the deeper meanings of Scripture. Often you may not realize, well, we'll get into one today, actually, now I think about it. Um, You may not realize it, but um, the, the Jewish Uh, text almost always has multiple layers to it. So whatever you're seeing at the front end is one thing, then there's another thing, and then if you really are deep into it, you can kind of figure out that there's multiple things going on. They would learn how to apply it and work it out in their lives, all right, put application in there, and then they began to learn the Tanakh, which is a shorthand way of saying the rest of the Old Testament, all right? So now it kind of flips on us because go all the way up to before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of this taught, memorized, now, now it's like, whoa, who's, how, who's doing that kind of stuff? Who has time between fishing and doing the laundry and making sure this village goes well to do those things? Well, some people had this unique capability to understand, to apply, to lead out in this area. So if you had the unusual ability to understand the scriptures, an unusual passion, you could be chosen by an existing rabbi to become his Disciple. The word for disciple is Talmidim. So the third one here, and I won't give you bubble letters again, but Talmidim. A disciple. Now, the thing that's unique about this is they would have to uh, vet you. They would ask you a bunch of questions to pursue this meant that you wanted to be the disciple of a particular rabbi. Like, I want to be the person who does this like you do it. I want to make food like this chef does it. I want to make music like this musician does it. I want to be somebody who builds um, uh, whatever skyscrapers like this person builds because I like their design kind. I like what they do. So they pick a specific rabbi and say, I like the way you work this stuff out. I want to become the rabbi's disciple. And so not everyone could be it. The rabbi would observe you, then question you. Then if the rabbi thought you didn't have it, what they would say to you is a specific phrase, Go and learn your family trade. Okay. Thank you, sir. (laughs) Uh, If you did have what it takes, then they said, come follow me. And what you see Jesus specifically do is say to help you to become someone who fishes for people. Then they would leave their family. Then they would follow the rabbi, shadow them over one to three years, learning to think and act and be just like that person. There's this famous saying, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi, that's kind of well known. Um, And what it meant is that you're walking so closely behind this person on the dusty, dirty streets of the Middle Eastern context that they were walking in, Nazareth, Galilee, the, the dust would be kicking up and covering the person behind them. So you're such a good shadower of your rabbi that you are covered in the dust, and that was a compliment in that time. So my question to you is, if Jesus found these people while they were fishing, what, what do we know about them? What does it tell us about the men that Jesus decided to invite into shadowing him? Well, they weren't good enough to get past base affair. This is elementary school for them. They weren't good enough to get into these sections. They weren't good enough to go past all of these. They weren't the cream of the crop. They weren't the best of the best. They weren't the ones who had an unusual passion for all of these things. They didn't make the cut, and they didn't have what it takes to be a rabbi's disciple. So what are they doing? They're fishing. And actually, fishing is not a bad gig in this time. They made a decent amount of money. 
And even though that's true, Jesus invited them. Now, one more note that I want to make about the book that's unique to the book of Matthew. I'm not going to read the entire thing, but if you were to jump back to Matthew 1, the writer of this gospel, Matthew himself, has hidden something in the introduction that's really, really exciting genealogies. How many of y'all get into genealogies? As much as you might be into your own genealogy, I'm guessing you skipped over the genealogy at the front of Matthew, right? You're like, ah, names? I don't know, man. This person begat this person, which came to this one. We get into it when we know the details behind it, but when it's someone else, it's maybe not quite as exciting. And so what I want you to see is though we jump over this generic information, or we think like this is just typical back then, or we just think to ourselves, ah, you know what? This is kind of boring. I'm going to skip over it. But if you come from their culture, Matthew has hidden a few things inside of this genealogy. And so I I boiled it down instead of the this person begat this person and begat this person. I just, the list of names and a couple of descriptions that are found inside of uh, the beginning of this. First, you have to know that he's kind of echoing Genesis and Exodus um, through the beginning of this. Why? Because he's gone through Bates Affair, Matthew, and he has it memorized. Second, though, we go, well, Abraham, awesome. We're starting off good. Abraham's the father of all nations. Isaac, Jacob, Judah and his brothers. Interesting. Perez and Zerah, Tamar? If you're reading this, you're stopping right in your tracks in that moment because what just happened is like, okay, this was was going well, but then he just mentioned a woman. That's not normal in a genealogy. It's a patriarchal society. They follow the lineage of the men. And so including a woman at all is kind of like an oddity. And so right away, if you're reading this, you're like, "What's, what's he up to with this? Then you see Judah and his brothers, Perez and Zerah and Tamar. It's like, oh, okay. Um, how many of you have read Genesis chapter, I think it's 36 or 38? We've got a continuous flow of narrative, then like one oddball chapter, and then it picks up where it left off. You're like, what was that all about? What's this one tiny little story about a woman? It's kind of a weird situation, Matthew, for you to be bringing this up because um, he, he mentions this woman because she dressed up, she was denied her right to um, have a son, to be impregnated because her, her, her uh, husband dies. So um, instead of being taken care of by the family, she dresses up like a prostitute, tricks her father-in-law into sleeping with her, gets pregnant, and in the end, catch this, this is going to flip the script on all this, in the end, the, the moral of the story is she was more righteous than him. Right? So okay, great, Matthew, weird, bro, what are you doing? T- Tamar? Okay, let's, let's, maybe, maybe he messed up. He- Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, Nashon, Salmon, Boaz, Rahab? A little bit more famous than Tamar, right? Because where do we find Rahab in the midst of this story? Again, like, you're mentioning women, but then you, you look at this situation, and you're like, okay, um, she was a prostitute, Also, she wasn't an Israelite. Matthew, this is getting really strange. Why are you, right, okay, well well then, Rahab, Obed, Ruth, all right, Ruth. We got Ruth up in there, right? That's a beautiful story. Again, it's a woman, also not an Israelite. Okay, this genealogy is just getting weirder and weirder. But then this next one really gets me. Jesse, King David, and Solomon, and then in parentheses, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Recall the story. 
David impregnates this woman, then to get out of it, kills the father who is out at war fighting for King David. His name is Uriah. Well, Matthew, now it's just like, you went from weird, you went from like, this is odd, well, maybe, I don't know, and then to weird to like, dude, now you're just bringing up old trash from our history. This isn't cool. You're not honoring us in the midst of this. Why are you telling the story this way? Okay, I'm not going to read the rest. You go all the way down to, right? We, we, we just talked about in Christmas the story of Mary, and all of a sudden um, we get to this place where we see a young lady who is impregnated by someone who's not her, um, who's not the person she is betrothed to, uh, and, 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 and we, all, we all know the Christmas story from there. But in that moment, even including Mary, would have been an oddity. Well, this is the beginning of Jesus' birth, and this is the genealogy. Here's, here's my point as I bring you through that. If you were trying to create a regular gene, Jewish genealogy to prove your pedigree, in this time, what you'd be doing is trying to link yourself to David because he's known as a good king at that point, someone who did a lot for, for the, the people of Israel. You'd be trying to link yourself to a specific tribe or a specific person so that you could be associated with the priestliness of that group. And in this situation, what you see is this Jewish ancestry isn't helping to show pedigree or purity or anyone's connections to a priestly or to a royal lineage. Matthew is doing a terrible job if that's his job. If that's what he's trying to do, he's horrible at it. And so what is he doing? And my, um, my encouragement to you is to understand he's doing something on purpose. He's going out of his way to acknowledge the outsiders. He's going out of the way to acknowledge those who would not typically be included, women in the story that would typically not be included, Gentiles in the story that would not be typically included, which, by the way, helps us understand God's connection to be a blessing because we are blessed, right? The nations were always going to be brought back in. Matthew's helping us to see that. Then he brings in these dark stories that we wish we could avoid or just like, hey, let's not talk about those things anymore. Why? Well, I think he has a personal uh, 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 aspect to this. Because when you move forward and you read about the calling of Matthew, what we find out is that he's a tax collector. Tax collectors were not just n- not liked, they were hated. They were seen as people going against them and uh, going against the people of Israel, that they were cheating people, that they were stealing from them. And so I think if you're that person and that's your testimony, you find relief in this genealogy. You find relief in, in, in Jesus going to the not good enoughs and saying, come follow me, I will make you fishers of men because you realize that you're in good company. I can belong. I can be invited. In fact, there was a very well-known word during this time. I won't won't bless you with the interpretation, but he was considered a mumzer is the the Jewish kind of term for it. Um, And so there there is a a, a relatable um, translation, uh, but I won't say it in the sanctuary right now before you all. Um, But there's cuss words that would be put on his name, attached to him. Okay, so we have these hints from the Old Testament that God has always planned to reach out beyond his people, to reach all peoples, and and so we get a little bit of all of this. 
And we get a strong sense from the mumser himself, from the, the outsider, from the not good enough, from the person who is hated to understand that there is an open invitation to anyone and everyone to follow Jesus. I don't think you can make it any clearer. Matthew, this is the beginning, by the way. Matthew's stories almost only give this moment where he brings in the person who has been traditionally removed from the party, and he challenges the people who think they're already in the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He does it systematically. He does it step by step, and he is telling good news to the outcast, to the outsider, to the not good enoughs, to those who want to be told, come follow me, but have been excluded from the possibility of following. And so the open invitation to start discipleship comes with this other understanding, though. Because Jesus doesn't just say, come follow me. He says, and I will make you into fishers of people. The open invitation is a starting process. It's, it's, that, it's that first moment, hey, hey, come on in, come through this door, but it comes with the understanding that you will be formed into something new that I want to become a fisher of people, that you would be a disciple who wants to be like the rabbi, who wants to shadow the rabbi, to do and be like the rabbi. And in our case, it's Jesus Christ himself. And so this invitation also comes with a responsibility. And the invitation is open to anyone in fact, if you, if you doubt it, just, just read Matthew's book, understand who Matthew is, and Matthew's going to make sure that that is absolutely clear. But it comes with a challenge to be formed. It's not just follow me, it is follow and be formed. And I just kind of wanted to wrap things up just by telling this story of myself. When I started going to youth group early on, in my walk with Jesus, that was my invitation. Hey, it's fun. We're going to hang out. There's all kinds of fun things going on. Okay, let's do it. Some guy named Bill, um, he's a really, uh, an elderly gentleman that just volunteered to drive the van so that we could, those of us who didn't have parents going or those of us who um, didn't have the transportation, he'd pick us all up. There's like, I don't know, seven or eight of us, and I was one of them. He round us up, bring us in. That was my invitation. And when I came to church, my, my entire reason was to come with this examination, this critical analysis, evaluating them to decide if I thought they were good enough for me to be a part of. I, I went in based on my knowledge, my understanding, my life, my understanding of morality, my way of defining community, love, whatever it means to be a good human, I walked in there and I came in thinking, okay, I'm going to see if they match up to my standard of what I think those things would be. And if they do, then hey, maybe I'll grace them with my presence on occasion and join their club. Um, but that's what I thought was happening when I went in. Eventually, I realized that's not how this works. That's, that's not what God was doing in the midst of it. God wasn't trying to impress me or um, trying to sell me on something. He wasn't trying to buy my understanding of life and try to give me a little bit of that so that I could understand what's happening. He's a kind God. He sought after me. He rescued me from darkness I could say all of those things with a high level of intensity, but in the end, he came to me and said, this is a standing invitation 
I want you to follow me and be formed in the likeness of me. He was inviting me to believe and understand that he had a better way than what I thought was the standard, that he had a greater understanding of what it meant to be a human being than I did, that he had ways in which I didn't even understand that he could hand me purpose beyond anything I understood or ever believed or ever imagined was possible. He was inviting me to surrender my ideas, to lay them at his feet and to say in this moment, I thought I held the knowledge to the world and that I was checking you out, but in the end, you were actually checking me out, asking me if I was willing to surrender my life to you because you're the rabbi, I'm the student. I'm the Talmudim. I'm the, 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 the person who somehow got to skip Beit Sefer. I don't have that memorized. I got to skip Beit Midrash. I wasn't living any way that you could even think of following Jesus, a follower of Jesus would ever look like, but I got the invitation, and then I got the movement from invitation to follow. Relinquish control and begin modeling my life after him instead of trying to find a God in my image that would please me and affirm the things I already thought and believed. And so this is kind of our starting point. This idea of invitation, becoming an invitational type of person, begins with that idea of surrender. And there is nobody that gets to be excluded from that. The invitation is as wide open as it could be. Come follow me, but it's also an invitation to be formed and to change some parts of you based on the litmus test of God himself. Not me, not common grounds understanding of it. We're trying to be vessels of this thing. We're imperfect to that thing. But as long as you are getting your nose in the scriptures, going to God himself, he won't lead you away from it. But I'm telling you with a high level of certainty, you're not going to just follow your heart and find it. You're, you're not. You're just not. Follow Jesus and be formed. That is good news, especially if you identify with the mumsers of the world. If you can accept that news that those who were excluded are now included, the not good enoughs are now made good enough, that even those who think they were good enough, me, in his kindness led me to repentance and humbled me so I could then be formed, so I could evaluate where I've been and base where I'm going off of what Jesus is bringing me to. And so here is my invitation to all of us as we start. I want you to stop and understand your fellowship, that you have been asked no matter where you're at, nothing disqualifies you, and I mean nothing disqualifies you from that invitation. Have you been following well? Where areas have you been following well? If you've been a follower for a while, what about ways where you've just been following the anti-invitation of something over here that says, just do this instead. This will make you, you belong here. You just got to turn on all that God stuff. It's usually not that obvious, but it ends up there. If you can identify those things, can you follow or you've been following other things, maybe your own ways, maybe other philosophies, and maybe where you know, man, I've got this down actually. Like I'm really good at following Jesus in this one area. Find all those things. Then take where you're at and make a plan to surrender even more. Take where you're at and make a plan to go even further than you ever have before, to, to move closer to Jesus than you ever have and to become an even better disciple of him in all of these areas. But then it doesn't stop there. There's this invitational type of presence, right, that you get to be to invite others into the same cycle. 
to talk to people that you love and know that, that maybe don't know Jesus. That, and, and, and this isn't, I, I wish you could see this as deeper. I'm not just saying dis, like, to evangelize. The byproduct will it be evangelism. But what I'm saying is you have found something, you are connected to something that is good news to you, so how do you invite other people into that good news? Okay, that looks like evangelism, sure. What you're not doing is just collecting people for our club. This is not a, people are not going to become the, 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 the project here. But if you believe that Jesus is worth the invitation, then extend the invitation. Invite people to study the Bible with you. Invite people into spiritual conversations. They're almost always more willing than you might realize. The mo- the, I, I get outed every time. What do you do for a living? I'm at a New Year's Eve party. Um, I'm a pastor. Oh, well, as a man of the cloth, then why don't you tell me about this? I'm like, oh gosh, what am I? Are you serious? All right. As a man of the cloth, you're telling me that you don't know much about church stuff because no one says that anymore, all right? So we have these conversations amidst other ones. Invite people into spiritual conversations. I, I, can't, I can't escape it. So Invite people into your spiritual community. And that's where it does make sense. If this is an invitation-worthy place, we want to become an invitational community with a posture that is open, but also says, but you have to be formed, like follow and formation, follow and formation, relationship, responsibilities to that relationship. It's an endless cycle. And for me, it has worked out to make me a better person, a better human, much better than I could have thought of myself, much better than the philosophies I brought in with me, much better than other religious ideas. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. I'm just saying I just sought out a lot of other religious ideologies before I found Christianity. Most of us, I venture to guess, um, want to, to, they, we, we believe, um, how, how do you say it? We believe that God is invitational. We believe that we are supposed to invite others in, but we stop short of actually extending the invite because it feels weird, right? And so have some courage. Have some courage. I, you hear this, ver- I've heard 75, I've heard 82% of our friends and family would attend a church if someone would just ask them. I, I don't know how true it is. I just know I don't want to be somebody else's no for them. Don't don't know for them because you just didn't want to invite them. At least let them, I, that's not my thing, I'm not into it. I've heard it before. And so this is where we start a beautiful surrender to God, a recommitment perhaps. Maybe you're just at a time like, man, I, I just need to re-up on some things. And over the next few weeks, we're going to go look at different types of invitations that Jesus extends in the Bible or that the Scriptures extend to us. And the hope is that it would transform you as a person, but also us as a people to create a posture and a presence of invitation to everyone we go around. Amen? Will you accept the invitation? Let's pray. So Jesus, thank you so much um, for giving us the invitation to be disciples, but taking us further. If, if we are actually disciples, that invitation means that there's some things in our life that we surrender to you, that, that we understand you're a greater authority than we are ourselves or whatever philosophy or thing that we've bought into before. You're better. That's it. It's just that, that that's simple. And it may not even be bad, but you're just better. And so, God, I thank you for putting it in the heart of Cassie who invited me to go to church for the first time. Thank you for putting that in her heart.
thank you for Debbie, who was the pastor over that youth ministry and put up with a ridiculous amounts of rude questions that I gave to her because her invitational posture accepted them and allowed me to ask them. Thank you for seeking me out. But God, more so than that, thank you for changing my mind, allowing me to repent for that um, haughty uh, uh, way in which I approached you. Thank you for allowing me to be formed into a greater understanding of who you are so that I could become that. As far as that's my prayer for us, that's my prayer that we would all even recognize people have poured into us along the way. Thank you for them. Thank you for all of those things, Father. And thank you for the opportunity to be invited to follow and to be formed. We ask for this right now in the name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. Well, amen, everybody. Come on, let's give God praise for his word.